Although the representation of women in political decision-making spaces at national and international levels seems to be on the rise, UN Women has already predicted that gender equality will not be reached for another 130 years. Only 21% of government ministers are women, with only 14 out of 195 countries having achieved 50% or more women in cabinets. Today I'm speaking to a very special woman. Her name is Ambassador Vuyi Satulele, she's South Africa's ambassador to Vietnam, and she will be sharing with us about her journey as a woman in diplomacy. Your Excellency, good morning and welcome to Ubuntu Radio. Um, good afternoon from my world in Hanoi. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's great to have you here. It's great to have you here. Um, let's maybe start with a, a brief background about yourself. Tell us about the person that you are, um, about your life, how you grew up, your family, and what you enjoy doing, including reading and music. Um, I am just a typical girl from the Kasi. I am a girl from Halishiwe, Kimberley. Uh, those who know my roots, they know we say we are from the Y. Um, I, I grew up in a middle-class uh, family. My father was working for the beers, and we used to live in one of those complexes that were designated for the DPS employees only. So one could say that... Um, it looked like we were having a better of life, but it, it wasn't really much better because our parents and the community as a whole still get to deal with the struggles of being a South African uh, towards the end of the apartheid years. So growing up, my, my parents, who are fortunately both alive, um, they are very um, faith-based people, so I grew up. Having to go to church every Sunday, I still do that up to this day. I go to church. If I don't go to church, I feel incomplete. Um, and, but I was also keenly aware of the difficulties that I saw my parents experiencing, that my mom had to work and my dad had to work. And my mom at that point was working as a housekeeper, but she was working for a white family. And my question would always be, but my mom leaves us at home to go take care of the children of another woman, does that woman not think that we need our mother's attention? And I think that kind of sparked some kind of consciousness and and a social activism in me. And uh, it, it just kind of went downhill from there because as I entered high school, in those years there was a thing called exemption. I'm sure you don't know about it. You're too young for that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that young, Ambassador. <laughs> <laughs> there was a thing called exam fee. So when I entered high school, uh, the, the team that was doing matric in that year, they were organizing a protest to abolish the payment of the matric fee. Mm. So my, my logical self told me that I only have four years to get to matric, right? And I know that my parents will not be able to afford the matric fee then. So it's only in my interest that I get involved in this protest now. So I was, I was in the standard six, that's what we called it then. But I was part of organizing the marches and the protests for people who were protesting <laughs> for the matric fee. But my notion in that case was that 
I understand the challenges because we come from the same neighborhood and our parents work for the same company. So if they cannot now afford to pay for the matric fee, why would I think that my situation would be different? And and it, it just kind of went haywire from there because I started getting involved in student uh, activism, in youth activism. And, and yeah, uh, so as they say, the, the rest, the rest is history. The rest is history. And then you you grew, you passed your metric. I wonder if you paid the exam fee or not. <laughs> <laughs> then what was next? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I didn't pay the metric fee because it worked for me to get involved in the protest when I entered high school. Because every year following that, I was part of the students that were organizing uh, the campaign against the abolishment of the matric fee. By the time I got to matric, even though it was not a government policy, but the school had kind of come to understand that they're not going to give up. So the principal was like, you know what? We're not going to require you to pay matric fee. The only thing we require of your families is that the child has an ID and that you are up to date with your school staff. And, and that's it. But I think the broader success is that because this was on the cusp of your 1994 elections, it was, there was a whole change that was taking place in the country. And it was not just something unique to my school. I think your administrators and your teachers and everybody had come to sense that there's change coming in South Africa. And so schools were beginning to prepare for that change slowly. But I would say I was fortunate enough to be in that first group that were not required to pay the metric uh, fee. So soon after passing your metric, what is it that you pursued? Uh, so as I said, I, came, I come from the Northern Cape in Kimbang, right? In my days, there was no university in the Northern Cape. So uh, like most of my peers, we had to leave to pursue a higher education. And I found myself... Uh, in the big bustling city of Johannesburg um, because I was admitted to study at Vets University. So I then pursued uh, my studies there, majoring in, in politics. But I think it, it was more of an after-fact for me because of my social uh, consciousness. I, I had understood that I needed the technical skills to be able to engage with the system. And, and the only way I could get those technical skills would be to go to university. Um, but that did not stop me from being a youth activist by far. So whilst I was studying at Vets University, I ended up being the SRC president there, causing a whole lot of commotion for the poor people at Vets University, because I was in the first group that at Vets University introduced the, the no payment of registration fee for Vets University, uh, bringing my days of the uh, non-metric payment. So I just brought them to university. So I, I pursued my studies there. And when I completed my studies, I went to work for an entity called Umsobongu Youth Fund. Uh, that entity was the creation of a, a secondary frame to help youth development because in those days, we had what we call the National Youth Commission, which was responsible to advise government around youth development issues. But the difficulty with the Youth Commission is that it did not have funding to implement any programs for youth development. And we thought that the best thing to do would be to have an agency that is responsible 
for funding youth initiatives across the spectrum because one of the arguments we were making was that youth development cannot be turned into a ministry. It is a cutting across issue because young people need housing, they need health, they need jobs, they need uh, safety and security, they need water. So you, you cannot pigeonhole young people into a ministry, but you have to make sure that there's an entity that takes care of youth development and is able to hold government accountable. And that was the function of the youth uh, um, commission. But I worked for Umsobombu Youth, youth Fund that was looking at the, at the funding aspect of that. Um, and then uh, I think I, I was at Umsobombu Youth Fund maybe for like three years, and then I was appointed to be a part of the National Youth Commission. And then I was part of the people that... Uh, um, negotiated the folding in of Umsobombu Youth Fund and the National Youth Commission to what we know today as the National Youth Development Agency. Wow. I'm thinking back uh, at the back of my mind that this thing of fees must fall did not only start <laughs> now. You come a long no. way with this. <laughs> no, no, you really come no. a long way. It comes a long way. And I think this is what we were talking to the activists of fees must fall to say this is not a new phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We have been doing this forever. I think what has changed now is that they had more access to social media and and profiles, whereas our generation didn't have. But this is a fight that has been coming for years. And as I said, I wouldn't even dare to say it started with me. I found this fight there Mm. and I just joined the struggle. I see, I see. Now we're talking to you as... The ambassador of South Africa to Vietnam. How did it come about? Would you kindly share your journey into your career in diplomacy until you became an ambassador? Well, um, so remember what I spoke to you and I said I had this thing of youth development. So part of the things that I used to do was um, when I left the Youth Commission, I was the Secretary General of the ANC Youth League. Uh, the youth wing of the ruling party. And one of the, the, the items we had been agitating for was that we needed to bring young voices into diplomacy because there is the notion that diplomacy is for your seasoned people and you have to be 60 years or about to turn 60 or about to cough your lungs out before you can be considered a seasoned diplomat. But the, 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 the issue of that, the world has changed and the world is continuing to change and it's becoming younger. So we needed to have a reflection of a different core of, of diplomats. So part of the work that I was doing there was to engage with uh, Dirko around arming young people and training them to become uh, diplomats. Uh, the, the, the cadet program that Dirko runs is a direct consequence of the work that I used to do when I was the Secretary General of the ANC Youth League. So when I concluded my tour as the Secretary General of the ANC Youth League, um, the leadership of the country thought that since I was the loudest one making noise around young people and diplomacy, how about they see with me if this thing of young people and diplomacy is going to work. So I joined the department and I was uh, responsible for the department, the, the chief directorate, youth, uh, gender, women, and people with disability. And I was responsible for helping the department to refocus its position around those uh, uh, intersectional groups and to see how the department can respond 
to the challenges of especially younger people in the department because one of the realities about Yuriko was that you had an exceptional crop of young people that are in the lower management of the department, right? And they felt that their voices were not being heard because once you come to your middle management, to senior middle management, you had people who were historically trained and some of them who came from the Bantustans when there was an amalgamation of all the Bantustans into the new South Africa. And so that's when I joined the department that this was now in uh, 2011 when I joined the department and I, I was responsible for doing that work um, and whilst I was still enjoying myself learning the art of diplomacy and how to engage uh, people in an excellency way you know and not to be protesting um, the minister um, determined that it would be good for me to be posted uh, to Chicago so I had to undergo diplomatic training. Uh, so I went and in July of 2013, I was posted to Chicago as the Consul General in Chicago. And I must say that that was quite an interesting posting for a first-time post and for somebody who is not a career diplomat, right? And uh, it was also a learning curve to be able to understand how the world is moving and how the world is negotiating diplomatic relations in the new uh, dispensation. So I stayed in Chicago until 2017. And then from 2017, uh, I was sent to New Zealand. So I spent time in New Zealand from 2018 until uh, June 2022. Um, in July, I was then uh, moved to Vietnam. And so that's how you find me sitting here in cold Hanoi today, uh, representing South Africa. <laughs> I liked it when you said you had to learn to adjust to be diplomatic and uh, speaking the excellency language as compared to protesting on the streets. <laughs> you know, I come from uh, the deep rural Limpopo, and I'm thinking whenever I get to visit home, sometimes I get people asking me, where do you work? What is it that you do? Mm. And so many people don't really understand the work of the department because it is not directly serving the general mm. public. And mm. one may be listening to me right now and asking themselves, what exactly do ambassadors do? What <laughs> is your day like? What does your day in the office as an ambassador entails? Well, that's an interesting question, and I think there's a lot of speculation about what ambassadors do and what it is that we really do versus what is in the public domain, right? So one of the things that I had to learn very fast about being an ambassador is that you need to be an all-rounder because there, there is a lot of administrative work that we need to oversee in the, in the mission. And then you still need to be able to do the public diplomacy part where you go out and you speak to people and you are able to get businesses to be interested in doing business in South Africa. And you look at uh, academic institutions to offer uh, scholarships for young people from South Africa. So the, the day of an ambassador, is, it's, it's a, it varies depending on what happens. So I'll make an example in the context of Hanoi, right? So this year, we are celebrating 30 years of diplomatic uh, relations between Hanoi, uh, Vietnam, and South Africa. And, and now the, uh, the work that we have been focused on in the mission as we are going towards the end of a financial year 
is to start preparing for what we will be doing programmatically in the new financial year. So typically my day would start off with, because first, first I'm a mother. I always tell people, don't forget I'm a mother. I have two teenagers that I carry all over the world. So my, my day starts at about 6, 5.36 o'clock in the morning. I have to get my kids ready. And then after our morning uh, family devotional, I take them to school. Then I come back and I take a walk for an hour because it's important to keep your mind clear and your body engaged. So I walk around my neighborhood for about an hour and then I come back to get ready to go to the office. So usually my first meeting will start at about 9.30. And in this week, my focus meetings have been on preparations for the 30th anniversary. So yesterday I had a meeting with the DG for the Commission of External Relations of the Vietnamese Communist Party. And then uh, following that meeting, I had a meeting with our of, uh, staff to be able to prepare our documents in terms of what other things that we need to do. So this morning, I did the same morning routine and I came in. And then I had a meeting with the African ambassadors because one of the things that we have to always remember and be mindful of as South African representatives is that in some instances, we are the only voice of Africa. So wherever we speak, we need to be able to uh, project things in the interest of Africa. So I had a meeting with the African ambassadors, and then I had to edit a document that we are going to present to the Department of Foreign Affairs in Vietnam as a collective of, of the African uh, ambassadors. And then I had to approve some payments from the colleague because uh, there's people who need to get their salaries, there's people who need uh, uh, to get their children to school and the medical um, claims, those, those things. I have to be aware of every single thing that leaves the, the mission. So if there's money that is missing, I am the final executing authority for that mission. Then I, will have, uh, I would have a meeting with the uh, administration section to say, let us look at our budget flow to see how far are we in terms of our spending patterns, where do we need to slow down, where do we need to readjust, uh, is there a place where we can move funds around if we needed to do something more. And then that will only be until my nine to five job, which is what most people do, right? And people will assume at that point that's the end of the day. Actually, no, that's only when my day starts. Because at 6.30, I have to participate in the National Day of the Pakistanians. So I have to go and share with them because if you do not go out to participate in these events, you are creating a difficulty for your country because when it's time for South Africa to host its National Day, then colleagues do not come to you because you do not go out to their events. And then tomorrow morning, oh, in between all of these things that I'm doing, I have to talk to you, by the way, right? So um, tomorrow morning, I have to start all over again, and then I have to start planning for meeting with the Young Communist League to speak about the youth activities that we want to do for the 30-year anniversary of celebrations for diplomatic relations. So, so really, you, you don't have a way where you can say, oh, I... I know every day I'm going to be doing this and this and this and this. Next week I'm going to be traveling to another city uh, in, in Hanoi, I mean in Vietnam, uh, to speak about opportunities uh, for trade relations between uh, South Africa and Hanoi. So there's, there's a bit, you, you are a tour agent, by the way, I always tell people, you need to be able to sell your country and you need to make, make sure that when you are done talking to a person, that person wants to buy a plane ticket today and go to South Africa, you need to be an accountant because you need to know 
where the money of the mission is going to, how it's been spent, is it spent on the necessary thing. Sometimes you also need to be a counselor because all of these colleagues that you are working with when there are difficulties in their lives, they come to you and you need to be able to encourage them to make things different and for them to be able to improve their working conditions. Over and above the fact that you still need to be a present and available parent for your own children. Quite a busy calendar, I must say. I don't know how you manage this, Ambassador, but you seem to be having everything in order. And I really commend you for that. So you highlighted that you, you started in Chicago, you moved on to New Zealand and now in Vietnam. What would you classify as some of the highlights of your dip- diplomatic career? Hmm. That's, that's really a difficult question because I think each station has its own unique things, right? I will tell you that when I was in uh, Chicago, I was covering the Midwest, and the Midwest is uh, considered to be the automotive and the breadbasket of the United States. So this is where you speak all things agriculture. And one of the, the things that I really appreciated about that was the connections that we were able to make between institutions of higher learning in the Midwest and institutions of higher learning in South Africa. Because it's important to be able to expose our youth to opportunities of training that are available, but not only expose them, but make sure they take them up and they make use of them. So for me, if you ask me the six years plus that I spent in Chicago, what is the one outstanding thing? I would say to you, the, uh, the relationship between institutions of higher learning. That was, uh, for me, outstanding. Incidentally, I was actually talking to one of the gentlemen who was running one of those um, uh, collaborations just in this week, and he was saying to me, oh, I'm in Cape Town. I was hoping that you'll be in Cape Town. I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm in Vietnam. And he's like, oh, dear, am I ever going to be able to see you again? Because the work that we did between um, the... University of Missouri, uh, University of Kansas, UWC in the Western Cape, UCT in, in uh, Western Cape, uh, the universities of Chicago, Wits University, the universities of uh, Missouri, um, Urbana-Champaign, and the Solplaiki University in the Northern Cape. So for me, that's, that's kind of like leaving things in place that will go beyond uh, your tenure. Unfortunately, New Zealand was a bit of a COVID era situation. So I arrived in New Zealand and had just, just started getting to understand the work that was happening with the uh, economic emancipation for your indigenous people, which the Maori, the indigenous uh, people of New Zealand. And we, we ended up with the COVID lockdown. But I think one of the most outstanding memories for me was... Um, when we were able to travel to the furthest point in the country to meet with local leaders and to talk about creating partnerships with your previously disadvantaged communities in South Africa. And one of the things they said to me was that if there's anything that we will take away from your engagement is that our people, the indigenous people globally, need to work together and collaborate. And so this is work that I'm hoping that we'll still be able to continue because the Maori in New Zealand, they have huge access to land, fisheries, forestry. And, and because they have those resources, 
they have done exceedingly well in managing them to create intergenerational wealth. So the Maoris, they own land, but they can't sell their land. They've protected themselves such that land will never be sold. But they can lease out their land uh, to property developers to be able to do certain things. And with the money that they get from there, they create scholarships for their kids to send them to school to learn the skills that are required to run the industries that are there. They create old age homes for their elderly. They create access to health for their sickly. So it's, it's a whole community that is working with using the land that they have as an asset, not for an individual, but as an asset for the people. And in Hanoi, I would say that, oh, I've only been here for about four months. So maybe if we have this conversation in three years, then I'll be able to answer you what I think happened in Hanoi. <laughs> Indeed, you've only been there for a few months. In your view, as a country, are we doing enough to empower women? I would say from a a policy point of view, right? From a policy point of view, you cannot force South Africa. We are among the most progressive policies about supporting and encouraging women. However, policy must be implemented. And if policy is not implemented, it just becomes a white elephant. Part of the difficulties that we we have to think about is women are not homogeneous. Sometimes we think when we say women, they are the same thing, right? And I'm thinking about when I entered the diplomatic space and I was uh, sent as a consul general to Chicago. I showed up with a two-year-old and a four-year-old to Chicago. And... The mission did not have any child care facility. Uh, the mission did not make provision for um, working with your children if you need to work with your children. Because everybody who had arrived to Chicago before me, their children were already independent of them, right? So we, we had to change the systems of the mission to say, how do we support young mothers? Because we, we can't ask women to choose between being mothers and professionals. We don't do that of men. So we, we can't say, oh, we, we promote 50-50 as a representation um, quota in, as a country, right? But then our missions do not have family-orientated rooms. If, if people are coming to see the ambassador and the ambassador has got a two-year-old who is not feeling well, what should we do? Should the ambassador stay at home? and look after the two-year-old, or can the mission say, we will have a room where the two-year-old can sit with the nanny, and in case the two-year-old gets a bit fidgety, mom will be able to step out for her meeting for a moment to see the two-year-old and then come back to be able to finish their work. Women across the spectrum to be able to express themselves, they're not going to be able to do that. And, and I'm using the example of young women in this cut, but there's the other spectrum of older women who are menopausal, right? They are experiencing different challenges. Uh, sometimes we have a central con- controlled air con system. If a person is menopausal and we have a, a, a centrally controlled air system, if everybody in the office feels cold and this person is busy burning up and they want to put on a heater, we do not have a system that says, how do we support this person to still perform at a peak capacity whilst acknowledging that she's going through certain changes in her body. So my point is that 
Policy is not sufficient. Policy has to be followed by regulation. It has to be followed by plans. It has to be followed by infrastructure that seeks to say we are actively promoting and supporting the empowerment of women. Hmm. What you have just said now, it reminds me of one of my colleagues. She likes engaging me about... How is it not possible that as women, we are not afforded leave when we are on our periods or PMSing, you know? <laughs> she would love to hear this conversation, I must say. <laughs> okay. So, Ambassador, why is it so important for women to participate in global governance as ministers of international, international relations, for example, or ambassadors or foreign service officials uh, being uh, board members in international institutions and multinational corporations? You know, the, the, the thing about women is that we tend to think for the community. It's very rare you find, I'm not saying they are not there, it's very rare you find women who think for themselves. So when you use women to engage in multilateral and global fora, the possibility of finding resolution to conflict is very much higher than it is when you are looking at the men folk, because the men folk tend to want to do an intellectual and an academic test of strength. Who can quote Marx the best and who can quote Karl the best? And, and with women, we are like, what is the problem? How do we find the solution? What can we do to move one step closer to the problem? But it's also important that as women, we put our footprint in these institutions so that the yardstick for excellence can represent our reality. We were just talking about the thing of being menopausal, right? I, when I arrived in Vietnam, I participated in a conference about women and diplomacy. And one of the things I was asking, talking about, I said, um, you know when the Director General for the World Health Organization was appointed, right? There was a, a global outcry about a grandmother being appointed. And the question that I asked was that, so how old were the men before her? Because we, we are assuming that the men before her must have been young and they must have been active. That's why there's a problem with this. But in fact, the men were older than the woman who was appointed. And, and the question is, patriarchy is so entrenched in our language and in our communication system that the, the, the tool for excellence and the measure of excellence is based around the men folk. That only happens because our voices are not heard. When we are present in there, we are able to say, no, 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 no. Excellence is not about how many tours you have successfully concluded without interruption. Because guess what? Whilst you were doing that, successfully pursuing your career, your wife was sitting at home, holding, putting an eye on her life to support you. So the question should be, how do we change our institutions to allow us to be able to play a whole well-rounded way of life. I shouldn't need to choose whether I want to be a mother or I want to be a diplomat. I need to be able to say to my colleagues, if you are hosting an event at 6.30, that's family dinner time. Kids have just come from school, right? Now, of course, if I'm a 60-year-old, I don't have children. So why would I be bothered about uh, dinner, uh, having an event at 6 o'clock? But if women are there and grandmothers are there, they will be able to say, no, 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 no. We need to go home to go see the grandchildren, and then we can come and reconvene at 7.30 or at 8 o'clock. But we do not do that because now the, the, the structure and the infrastructure that is set up 
is supporting the way that the man does things. The man leaves the wife at home, they leave the sister at home, they leave the housekeeper at home, and they go out and they do what they need to do without any request. But women don't do that because when the kids come from school, you have to hear now who was bullying who, who was unkind to who. What homework is difficult? What is it that is not difficult? What is the outfit for tomorrow? These are the things that the conversations that are having happening between the mother, and when I say mother, I don't necessarily mean the biological mother, but the mother figure, whoever is playing the role of a mother, and the children. The men folk are not interested in that conversation. So our presence, our presence in international discourse will help our men folk to be sensitive today to say, parenting is not a one-way thing. A parenting is a two-way thing, right? You can't be a parent that only pitches up when there is a trophies or where there's a game and then that's it. You need to be there to have the conversation about the first period or about um, the young men having to shave for the first time. You need to be there as a mother to understand what your son is going through as the father has this conversation. But as a father, you also need to be there to understand that when my daughter is experiencing menstrual cramps and my wife is the ambassador and she's locked in a meeting and the school sends a notification to say your child is not feeling well, the dad needs to be able to go and respond to that call. We can only do that if we have equal representation in these institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to the time when you arrived in, in Vietnam. When Minister To Lam welcomed you to Vietnam, he highlighted that South Africa has now been the first and the only African country which established a partnership for cooperation and development with Vietnam. How is this partnership going? The partnership is still, uh, still needs more work. But I, I will say this, the, the, the relationship between South Africa and Vietnam has got a historical um, emphasis on it, right? And, and ac- accordingly, we need to make sure that we understand that the political relationship does not overshadow the economic relationship. Currently, South Africa and Vietnam do not have a free trade agreement. Vietnam is very big on free trade agreements. But what that Vietnam is very clear about is that they would like to increase the trade relations between South Africa and Vietnam. And I think one of the things that we will be doing in the context of the 30-year anniversary is to put together a delegation from Vietnam to South Africa that is going to speak about the actual actualization of these partnerships. Because it's well and good to have the partnership agreement, but these partnership agreements need to be cascaded down to implementable levels. So we are working with the Ministry of Trade and Industry to lead a delegation to South Africa with a specific emphasis on mineral energies, coal, coal and fresh produce, because there is a huge market for our fresh produce here. Right? So that's, that's one aspect of it. But there is also the aspect of the cultural and the people-to-people diplomacy. Vietnamese are very proud about who they are as a people. They have a rich culture, but so does South Africa. So there's an opportunity for us to be able to explore those relationships and strengthen them. So I think for me that we need to not only celebrate that we are the only country in Africa to have this agreement with Vietnam, but we need to move to a point and say what are the actual deliverables. So for me, um, in my tenure, hopefully by the time I conclude my tour of duty in Vietnam, I will be able to answer you in a form that says this partnership in the area of um, 
defense, these are the things that we've been able to conclude. In the area of trade, these are the things we've been able to conclude. In the areas of people-to-people, in the areas of education, these are the things. But I think we are, we are in good stead now because with the 30-year anniversary, it gives us an opportunity to review and reflect on where we have led and where it is that we need to increase our pace. You have already mentioned the marking of the 30th founding anniversary of diplomatic relations to, uh, between South Africa and Vietnam, which is happening this year in 2023. What are some of the significant projects that you are currently working on to mark this milestone? So um, what we have done this year is that I think, again, part of the thing where you see that where you have women, we think globally, the 30-year anniversary is not only um, in Vietnam. It is a regional thing because Singapore is also celebrating the 30-year anniversary. Uh, Malaysia is also celebrating the 30-year anniversary. Indonesia is also celebrating the 30-year anniversary. So between myself and High Commissioner Lobe, who happens to be a woman, we have taken a deliberate decision to say we are going to collaborate in celebrating this 30-year anniversary. So the programs that we are going to do, we are going to make sure that they are shared between the two countries. So amongst the things that we want to do, we are currently working with the Northern Cape uh, province to bring over a delegation both to Vietnam and Singapore to explore opportunities in the areas of trade, in the areas of skills transfer, and also in the areas of leadership development and, and, and political relationship. So we, we, are, we are very keenly working on that to make sure that by June this year, the delegation from the Northern Cape has arrived and it has been able to go to visit um, designated areas both in Vietnam and in Singapore. The second thing that we are working on is creating a link between the youth of Singapore, Vietnam and South Africa. Singapore does exceptionally well when it comes to entrepreneurship policies. Vietnam is a very operational-based country. So the, the strategy that we are using is to say you go and learn systems in Singapore and you come to Vietnam and you see how those systems are being implemented. And then you can go back to South Africa to see what we can learn from these two countries. So we will be putting together a dialogue between the youth in Singapore, Vietnam, and in South Africa. We hopefully want it to be an in-person, but if an in-person cannot work, we want to have a hybrid conversation. Then in August, we are celebrating women and their participation in achieving the 30-year democracy. So we are looking at women across the spectrum, whether it's in the economy, whether it's in politics, whether it's in diplomacy, whether it's in academia, and just celebrating how they have contributed to maintaining and the upkeep of these relationships between South Africa and these countries in Southeast Asia. And we want to end off the year because I think it's important we do not underplay the significant role of our arts. We want to end off the year with showcasing South African arts and culture in this region. Hopefully we can find a way where we can have partnerships in terms of linking our artists with relevant people in the two countries. But we need to be able to be mindful of the fact that arts and culture is it's actually part and parcel of economic diplomacy. When we speak about people-to-people relations, we are talking about exporting our arts and culture to each country. But we are also speaking about economic opportunities because using arts and culture, you are able to use things like homestays. So when you have people traveling either to South Africa or to Vietnam, you have them, instead of them staying in hotels, 
they stay with designated families. That allows them to be able to use their money. Africans. Vietnamese, just like South Africans, are very family-orientated. Uh, one of my absolute mem- wonderful memories about Vietnam is I was coming from an event and as we were driving, I, I drove past a family that was sitting outside, and you could see this is an intergenerational family. This was grandmother, grandfather, mom, dad, and the children. And they were sitting outside having dinner because Vietnam can be very hot. So it's usually very nice to sit just outside of the family house and enjoy a dinner. And it reminded me so much of me, my family back home. When we go home and we go visit our grandparents, we sit outside and we just join in with the neighborhood to celebrate whatever it is that we're celebrating. So that was one thing that I was like, this is so much in common with um, South Africa. But Vietnamese also have a very sad history, just like South Africa, of separation and invasion. And I think they, they have taken an active decision to work towards rebuilding the image of the country and creating a patriotism that will not be disturbed by the history. And that's something that I think we can learn as South Africans to say, how do we use our history to propel us forward, but not to take us backwards. On a lighter note, oh my word, South Africans and Vietnam are hand in glove for their sense of fashion. I have never seen so many people who are so brand conscious. It's almost like you are walking at home, you know. When people go out, it's labor, right? And, and it's, it's one of these things that you see that we could be so far apart, but there are things that can still draw us together and we can talk about what is it that we can do to strengthen the relationships between Vietnam and South Africa. Your message that you would like to pass to young women who would want to pursue a career in diplomacy? Um, I think this one, the minister will be very upset with me for this, but I'm going to venture out and say this. Be yourself, because the art of diplomacy is being able to represent your country and bring your unique flavor. And when I say be yourself, I, I, I mean that you have to be able to understand who you are first, what drives you, what makes you wake up every morning, and then take that passion to say, how am I going to make people see my country in a different light? Because if you do not know who you are, how can you sell your country? You can't sell your country if you don't know who you are. So as young women, we have to be able to be comfortable in who we are, but we have to have a deep-seated love for our country and for our people and understand that the art of diplomacy is basically just going around and being a salesperson for your country and the assets that your country has. You cannot sell something that you do not know. I see you are representing us very well. You know why? I've been going through the net trying to get pictures because I've never met uh, Ambassador Tulelo, but I would like to see the person that I'm speaking to. And I see a lot of pictures of yourself. You are wearing something that has a touch of South African. It's either beads or something like that. When you were being uh, welcomed or when you presented your credentials in, in, in Vietnam, you were adorned in Chivendam 
Mwenda. And I loved that. You are selling our country very well, Ambassador. So I want to thank you very much for taking time off your busy schedule. I know it's already like late afternoon in Vietnam. You should be home by now. Maybe the girls are waiting for you as well. So thank you so much, Ambassador. Enjoy the rest of the day and I wish you all the best in your future projects. Thank you so much for the conversation and you have a wonderful day too. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay. Bye.